by October 1969, the Zodiac had wounded two people and killed five victims in four attacks at locations spanning from a lake recreation area and Lover's Lane spots to an upscale residential neighborhood in the city of San Francisco. The killer sent several letters declaring his intention to kill again, and he also threatened to attack a school bus and shoot the children. The Zodiac's terrifying crime spree made headlines across America, and the news seemed eerily similar to the story of another murder that had occurred a few years earlier in Southern California. In that case, a young woman was murdered on a college campus, and someone claiming to be the killer sent taunting letters to the local newspaper, the police department, and the victim's father. The writers speculated about his next victims and warned, Keep your sisters, daughters, and wives off the streets and alleys. Beware. I am stalking your girls now. On the night of October 30th, 1966, a good-looking young woman left this college library and started home. She never made it. She was young and beautiful, but now she is battered and dead. She is not the first, and she will not be the last. There is no doubt that the person who wrote the confession letter is our homicide suspect. Bates had to die. There will be more. A poem, its subject, violent death. I am not sick. I am insane. But that will not stop the game. This is Zodiac A to Z. News of the bizarre crimes and letters by the Zodiac attracted the attention of Thomas Kincaid, chief of the Riverside Police Department. Reading about the Zodiac, Kincaid was reminded of the case of an unsolved homicide that occurred three years earlier. In early October 1969, Kincaid contacted Agent Mel Nikolai at the Department of Justice to report his suspicion that the crimes could be connected. Nikolai directed Kincaid to investigators in Napa, and on October 17, 1969, Chief Kincaid called the Napa County Sheriff's Office. Sheriff Earl Randall listened to the details about the still-unsolved homicide of a young college co-ed in October 1966. Shortly after the murder, a local newspaper received a strange confession letter from someone claiming to be the killer. Randall was intrigued and forced to consider the possibility that the 1966 crime may have been the work of the Zodiac. Three days later, Randall received a letter accompanied by a package of photographs. The letter, signed by Kincaid and Sergeant Harry L. Homsher of the Riverside Police Homicide Division, read in part, This letter is in reference to our telephone conversation of 10-17-69 regarding the similar MO of your Zodiac suspect and the suspect of our homicide file, 
number 352-481. It may aid you to have a brief synopsis of our homicide. On October 30th, 1966, Sherry Jo Bates, a college student at Riverside City College, was brutally murdered. Our investigation revealed that the victim had gone to the City College campus to obtain some books from the library. It was established that she had entered the library and checked out three books at approximately 6 p.m. She returned to her vehicle, which was parked on a city street a short distance from the library, placed her books in the vehicle, and attempted to start her vehicle. The vehicle had been tampered with so it would not start. This was evidently done by the suspect to keep the victim near her vehicle so that the suspect could make his approach. Our victim then left her vehicle, accompanied by the suspect, and walked approximately 200 feet from her vehicle into a dirt driveway between two houses. These houses were vacant and part of the school property, having recently been purchased by the city college. While in this driveway area, our victim was attacked with a knife and stabbed numerous times in the chest. She was also stabbed once in the back, and her throat was severely cut, almost to the extent where she was decapitated. In addition to the stab wounds, our victim had been beaten about the face and had been choked. There was no evidence that the victim had been sexually attacked as she was fully clothed and the clothing was not disarranged. There was nothing to indicate a motive of robbery as victim's purse and its contents were intact. One month after the homicide, letters were received at the press and our department written by the suspect of our homicide. The suspect used a black felt tip pen to address the envelopes and had used uppercase print. The confession was typed. There are numerous errors in spelling, punctuation, etc., as you will notice. The confession by blank. She was young and beautiful, but now she is battered and dead. She is not the first, and she will not be the last. I lay awake nights thinking about my next victim. Maybe she will be the beautiful blonde that babysits near the little store and walks down the dark alley each evening about seven. Or maybe she will be the shapely, blue-eyed brownette that said no when I asked her for a date in high school. But maybe it will not be either. But I shall cut off her female parts and deposit them for the whole city to see. So don't make it too easy for me. Keep your sisters, daughters, and wives off the streets and alleys. Miss Bates was stupid. She went to the slaughter like a lamb. She did not put up a struggle. But I did. It was a ball. I first pulled the middle wire from the distributor. Then I waited for her in the library and followed her out after about two minutes. The battery must have been about dead by then. I then offered to help. She was then very willing to talk to me. I told her that my car was down the street and that I would give her a lift home. When we were away from the library walking, I said it was about time. She asked me about time for what? I said it was about time for her to die. I grabbed her around the neck with my hand over her mouth 
and my other hand with a small knife at her throat, she went very willingly. Her breast felt very warm and firm under my hands, but only one thing was on my mind, making her pay for the brush-offs that she had given me during the years prior. She died hard. She squirmed and shook as I choked her, and her lips twitched. She let out a scream once, and I kicked her head to shut her up. I plunged the knife into her, and it broke. I then finished the job by cutting her throat. I am not sick. I am insane. But that will not stop the game. This letter should be published for all to read it. It just might save that girl in the alley. But that's up to you. It will be on your conscience, not mine. Yes, I did make that call to you also. It was just a warning. Beware. I am stalking your girls now. CC Chief of Police, Enterprise. No one could confirm a phone call to the police or the Riverside Press Enterprise newspaper. The Riverside Police reported a disturbing conclusion. The person who wrote the confession letter is aware of facts about the homicide that only the killer would know. There is no doubt that the person who wrote the confession letter is our homicide suspect. The original of this letter was evidently destroyed or kept by the suspect, as the press and our department received a carbon copy of the original. These carbon copies were a fourth or fifth copy and difficult to read. It should be noted that the copies received by the press and the department were on plain white paper of poor quality. Width of paper is 8 inches. The length of the paper is unknown, as the suspect, a peculiarity, tore off the bottom and top of the paper. Physical evidence found at the scene of our crime indicated that heel prints found near the body were made by a heel that was manufactured for military and other government agencies, including prisons. Like the boot prints left at the scene of the stabbing at Lake Berryessa, the footwear seemed to suggest that the killer was somehow connected to the military. We were able to lift some latent fingerprints from our victim's vehicle. These prints were not identified. Our unidentified prints are on file with the FBI under the file number 32-27195, latent case number 73096. Copies of the latent lists from your homicide were obtained from CI&I and sent to the FBI for comparison with the latent lifts from our investigation. There are numerous similarities in your homicide. I thought you should be aware that we are working a similar type homicide investigation. If you are able to determine handwriting comparison or by any other means that your homicide suspect is the same as ours, please advise. I will notify you of the results in comparing your latent lifts with ours as soon as I hear from the FBI. I hope this information may aid you in your investigation. Please be assured of our complete cooperation in all matters of mutual interest. The confession letter had been mailed to the local newspaper approximately one month after the murder. Further investigation revealed that some of the information contained in the confession had appeared in the news reports about the murder but police still believe that the author was aware of facts known only to the killer. Other suspicious notes were also connected to the case. In April 1967, 
someone sent three handwritten notes to the Riverside Press Enterprise newspaper, the local police, and even the father of victim Sherry Jo Bates. Written in pencil on white notebook paper, the message read, Bates had to die. There will be more. At the bottom of two of the notes, the writer had included a small symbol that resembled the letter Z. At the scene of the stabbing, police recovered a man's Timex watch, still running. The leather band was broken, as if the watch had been torn from the killer's wrist during a struggle. The disturbed ground at the scene indicated that such a struggle had taken place, and that the victim fought for her life. Police reconstructed the events that preceded the murder, and recreated the path that led the young and promising student to her death. The life of Sherry Jo Bates lasted a brief 18 years. An intelligent young girl with blue eyes and blonde hair, Sherry Jo grew up in Southern California and was the youngest of two children. A source of joy for her family and friends, Sherry Jo made the honor roll at Ramona High School and was also a popular cheerleader. When her parents separated in 1965, Sherry Jo and her father, Joseph Bates, moved to a small house at 4195 Via San Jose in Riverside. Her brother Michael joined the Navy and was sent to Florida. Sherry Jo graduated from high school and hoped to be an airline stewardess. Those who knew her believed she was capable of greater things in life. She took a job at the Riverside National Bank while her father worked as a machinist at the Corona Naval Ordnance Laboratory. Sherry and her father were just getting used to living together when she was killed. Joseph Bates said that life was lonely without her. On the morning of Sunday, October 30, 1966, Joseph and Sherry Joe dressed for church services and headed to St. Catherine's Church. After the Mass concluded, the two had breakfast at a local restaurant and returned home. Sherry Joe was determined to study as her father headed off to the beach. After calling a friend in a fruitless search for a study partner, Sherry Joe wrote a note for her father that read, Dad went to RCC Library. Sometime after 4.30 p.m., she climbed into her green Volkswagen Bug and headed to the college campus. Joseph Bates came home at approximately 5 p.m. and found the note taped to the refrigerator. A friend later reported that she had seen Sherry Joe as she had driven toward the RCC campus at approximately 6.10 p.m. Another witness who lived close to the school said that she had seen a green Volkswagen bug and a driver matching Sherry Joe's description in an alley. The bug was followed by a bronze-colored Oldsmobile. Police placed Sherry Joe at the library sometime after this sighting. We know she actually entered the library only because of three books on the Electoral College she checked out, which were found on the front seat of her car. Investigators speculated that the suspect had watched as Sherry Joe stopped her Volkswagen in the library parking lot and then walked inside. 
he may have disabled the engine and waited for her to return. The man may have planned to offer his assistance once she discovered that the car would not start, and then used the opportunity to win her trust and perhaps guide her to the scene of the crime. No one knows what happened after Sherry Jo returned to the parking lot. According to the confession letter, the killer had approached her and offered to give her a ride. After the two walked away from the library parking lot, the man killed her with a knife. Authorities were somewhat puzzled by the time span of the events. The library closed at 9 p.m., but a witness had reported hearing an awful scream near the crime scene sometime between 10.15 p.m. and 10.45 p.m. Police found it difficult to believe that the killer had somehow restrained Sherry Jo for more than 90 minutes, but, if accurate, the time of the scream seemed to suggest that Sherry Jo Bates was killed later in the evening. After the clock struck midnight and Halloween commenced, Joseph Bates came home to find that Sherry Jo had not returned. He assumed that she was with friends and decided to go to bed. When he awoke the next morning to find that she was still gone, Joseph became concerned and called one of her friends, who said that she had not spoken to Sherry Jo since the previous afternoon. At 5.43 a.m., Joseph Bates called police to report that his daughter was missing. Less than an hour later, a sweeper machine made its way through the campus of Riverside City College. The driver, groundskeeper Cleophus Martin, neared the library and turned onto Terracina, approximately 75 feet from the parking lot where Sherry Joe's Volkswagen Bug still sat undisturbed. Martin was horrified to see the lifeless body of a young woman lying face down in the dirt between two houses. He quickly called police. Pathologist F. Rene Modlin arrived at the scene at 9.03 a.m. and inspected the damaged body of the young student. Sherry Jo was wearing capri pants and a heavy pink blouse. Her white sandals still covered her bare feet. Modlin bent down and touched the body. Her skin was cool, and rigor mortis had already started. The victim's purse still contained all of her identification and 56 cents. Approximately 10 feet away from the body, police found what appeared to be the killer's Timex watch still running. Police also found a heel print. Department of Justice agent Mel Nikolai noted the details regarding the boots in his own report on the Bates case. The heel print was identified as a B.F. Goodrich waffle design men's 4 8 inch washer-type half-heel. The B.F. Goodrich Products Division of Akron, Ohio, reported that this type of heel was sold only to the federal prison industries at Leavenworth, Kansas. It was subsequently learned that the federal prison industries made low-quarter military shoes and supplied them to all of the armed services using black dress shoes. The measurement of the heel indicated that it would have been attached to an 8 to 10 size shoe. Shoes bearing the same type of heel were issued and sold at the PX at March Air Force Base in Riverside. Police searched Jerry Joe's Volkswagen Bug and discovered her library books. 
On the front seat, they found a greasy set of palm prints. The coil wire of the car's distributor had been pulled from its socket, effectively disabling the vehicle. Police believe that this explained the greasy palm prints. Dr. F. Rene Maudlin examined the body of Sherry Jo Bates at Atchison and Graham Mortuary in Arlington, California. Present for the examination were Detective Gerald H. Dunn and Detective Earl T. Brown of the Riverside Police Department, along with investigators from the Riverside County District Attorney's Office and the County Coroner's Office. Modlin's report noted, several hairs removed from the base of the thumb and placed in a four by one and a half inch clear plastic container held by Detective Earl T. Brown. The hairs seemed to confirm that Sherry Jo had fought with her killer. The doctor found debris, scrapings of human skin and hair, under the victim's fingernails. Riverside Police Captain Irv Cross later told the press that preliminary analysis of the scrapings from beneath the fingernails indicated that the murderer was a white male. The autopsy report listed lacerations of the face, neck, hands, arm, forearms, lung, common carotid artery, thyroid, thyroid cartilage, rib, and abrasions of face, hands, forearms with petechiae of the forehead. Petechial hemorrhages occur when blood flow is interrupted and vessels burst beneath the skin, or often in the eyes during strangulation. Modlin's report stated that the cause of death was hemorrhage due to laceration of the right carotid artery, and added that death was due to strangulation as a result of the severed right common carotid artery and laceration of the neck, most likely caused by a knife. The doctor counted a total of seven lacerations to the neck. The pathologist wrote that the state of rigor mortis, post-mortem lividity, and body temperature at 9.23 a.m., indicated that the victim had been dead between 9 and 12 hours. The death certificate listed the possible time of death as 10.30 p.m., apparently based in part on the alleged timing of the scream heard by a potential witness. The report also described the murder weapon as a small knife, with a blade that would be approximately one-half inch wide and three and a half inches long. The position of the killer could not be determined with certainty based on the location of the wounds. Some of the wounds were deep, but most were superficial lacerations of the arms and breasts. These wounds, as well as the cuts on Sherry Jo's hands and those to her lips, cheek, and face, may have occurred as the killer restrained the victim. Riverside police questioned dozens of people who had been at the library that night, but no one had seen Sherry Jo or a mysterious stranger lurking in the parking lot. An elaborate reconstruction of the events, orchestrated with the help of more than 60 witnesses, revealed that at least two people who were in the library that night remained unidentified. A woman and a heavy-set young man about 5 feet 11 inches tall with a beard. Due to the skin and hair found underneath the fingernails of the victim, 
police were looking for a man with wounds from the struggle or scratches on his face. A mysterious vehicle also raised suspicion. At approximately 7 p.m. on the night of the murder, a witness noticed a light-colored Studebaker parked on a street just south of the crime scene. The vehicle appeared to be a 1947-1952 model, and the paint had oxidized. Police asked newspapers to publish photos of a similar vehicle and requested that anyone who had information come forward. In December 1966, custodians at the Riverside City College were moving furniture from the library when they noticed that one desk was covered with handwriting. The message had been etched into the wooden surface using a ballpoint pen, and the strokes indicated that the writer had traced over the letters to make each character darker. Written in the style of a poem, the disturbing message appeared to evoke images of murder. Sick of living, unwilling to die. Cut clean if red. Blood spurting, dripping, spilling all over her new dress. Oh well, it was red anyway. Life draining into an uncertain death. She won't die this time. Someone will find her. Just wait till next time. R.H. The desk and its ominous warning could have been the work of the killer or just the unsound mind of a student. The initials R.H. could not be connected to anyone who had known the victim. Investigators focused on a former boyfriend known by the pseudonym Bob. Campus rumors suggested that Bob had dated Sherry Jo and may have killed her in a jealous rage after she ended the relationship and began seeing another man. One witness later claimed that he had seen Bob on the night of the murder and that the suspect was in great distress over the loss of his wristwatch. He allegedly asked the friend to help him look for the watch, and the two went back to the scene of the crime at the Riverside City College campus. According to the friend, the body of Sherry Joe was lying on the ground as he and Bob looked for the missing watch. They soon gave up and left the area. The friend did not report the incident to police at the time of the murder, but did so years later. Another witness reportedly told police that on the day of the murder, Bob was angry when he heard that Sherry Jo was at the library and stormed off in search of his former girlfriend. While investigators were tempted to believe these witnesses, the stories were almost too good to be true. The confession letter hardly seemed the work of an estranged boyfriend attempting to distance himself from the crime. In the letter, the writer indicated that he had known the victim at one time and wrote that he had killed her for brush-offs in the past. This statement would obviously lead investigators to believe that a former boyfriend or a rejected suitor was a likely suspect and would therefore cast suspicion on individuals like Bob. 
Riverside Police Captain Irv Cross talked about the suspect in an interview with reporters and said, We have a hot suspect under investigation, but at the present time we do not have enough physical evidence to attempt a prosecution. Cross was reluctant to make the evidence known to the public. Bob's real name also remained confidential. In October of 1969, 27 members of at least nine law enforcement agencies met at the San Francisco Police Department offices to share information and coordinate efforts to find the killer. Among those in attendance were Captain Martin Lee and fingerprint expert William Hamlet of the San Francisco Police Department, Chief Assistant Attorney General Arlo Smith, and Special Agent Mel Nikolai of the California Department of Justice. Chief Jennings of the Napa Police Department, Detective Sergeant Hal Snook of the Napa County Sheriff's Office, Detective Sergeant Pierre Bidou of the Benicia Police Department, Steve Armenta of the State Bureau of Narcotics, as well as representatives from the Solano County Sheriff's Office, the California Highway Patrol, the State Bureau of Criminal Identification and Investigations, and even the United States Post Office. The massive gathering was an overwhelming illustration of the threat posed by the Zodiac. The meeting lasted more than three hours and, according to a report by Agent Mel Nikolai, investigators were made aware of what evidence and information each department had available. One year later, in October 1970, the Zodiac sent a Halloween card to San Francisco Chronicle reporter Paul Avery. According to published accounts, a man named Phil Sins sent the reporter an anonymous letter. Phil asked investigators to examine the similarities between the Bates case and the Zodiac crimes. The writer also expressed his hope that the various law enforcement agencies were not too proud to work together. Intrigued by the anonymous letter, Avery contacted the Riverside Police Department and spoke with Captain Irv Cross, who happily sent the reporter a copy of a handwritten note attributed to the Bates killer. Avery then boarded a plane for Riverside and met with Detective Sergeant Dave Boney to discuss the case and the possible connection to the Zodiac. After he noted the details of the Riverside case and viewed the writings associated with the murder, Cross provided Avery with documents, photographs, and other materials. On November 17, 1970, Avery took the Riverside evidence to Sacramento and questioned documents expert Sherwood Morrill. Morrill studied the photographs of the Riverside letters and the desktop poem and determined that the writing matched the Zodiac's writing. Morrill stated, the handwriting scratched on the desk is the same as on the three letters, particularly like that on the envelopes, and this handprinting is by the same person who has been preparing the Zodiac letters received by the Chronicle. Morrill's conclusion that the Zodiac was also responsible for the desktop poem proved controversial, but the expert stood by his professional opinion. Captain Cross reviewed Morrill's findings and agreed that the Zodiac was a viable suspect. In San Francisco, 
Inspectors William Armstrong and Dave Toskey made arrangements to fly to Riverside to confer with authorities there. And they also invited Napa County Sheriff's Investigator Ken Narlo and Department of Justice Agent Mel Nikolai. The investigators were surprised when Paul Avery joined them on the same flight. After a meeting with Riverside Police, the investigators remained skeptical of the theorized connection between the Bates murder and the Zodiac. Police examined the student records of Riverside City College in search of handwriting similar to the Zodiac's, but found none. The Chronicle announced that its star reporter had discovered what came to be known as the Riverside Connection. And soon, headlines read, Zodiac Link is Definite and Zodiac Tied Riverside Slaying Confirmed. The Los Angeles Times ran a story that claimed evidence linked the Zodiac to the Bates murder. Four months after Paul Avery's Riverside revelations made headlines, a curious envelope turned up in the mail delivered to the offices of the Los Angeles Times newspaper. Postmarked in Pleasanton, California on March 13, 1971, the envelope was somehow delayed and did not arrive at the Times offices until Monday, March 22nd. Two upside-down six-cent stamps decorated the upper right corner of the envelope addressed the LA Times. Please rush to editor, airmail. The sender also wrote airmail on the back of the envelope. Inside, the newspaper staff discovered a letter with handwriting that seemed familiar. This is the Zodiac speaking. Like I have always said, I am crack-proof. If the blue meanies are ever going to catch me, they had best get off their fat asses and do something. Because the longer they fiddle and fart around, the more slaves I will collect for my afterlife. I do have to give them credit for stumbling across my riverside activity, but they're only finding the easy ones. There are a hell of a lot more down there. The reason I'm writing to the Times is this. They don't bury me on the back pages like some of the others. SFPD, zero. Zodiac, 17 plus. The phrase Riverside Activity was an undeniable reference to the murder of Sherry Jo Bates, and the letter hinted that the Zodiac was responsible for the crime. The box score at the bottom of the page indicated that the killer was claiming 17 victims. Only the Zodiac knew whether this was a true tally of his slaves for the afterlife, or just a clever strategy in his attempts to manipulate the media. More victims meant more publicity, and since the Zodiac's last known murder occurred more than one year earlier, he may have felt the need to exaggerate his accomplishments in order to maintain the publicity he craved. If the box score was simply a shrewd ploy to get attention, the plan was a success. The term blue meanies was often used in Britain to describe police officers and was made popular by the animated Beatles musical cartoon Yellow Submarine. Filled with wild colors, bizarre characters, and songs by the legendary band, the animated classic also featured many hideous and crazed beings known as 
Blue Meanies. The name was also used to describe deputies of the Alameda County Sheriff's Department, known for the turquoise blue jumpsuits they wore during confrontations with protesters at the People's Park in the spring of 1969. The trailer for the 1971 car chase film, Vanishing Point, included phrases similar to the Zodiac's letters sent to the Los Angeles Times. They want to get him and put him away, but they'll have to catch him first. Being chased by the blue, blue meanies on wheels. The headline of the LA Times read, Breaks Silence, 17-plus victims claimed in letter by Zodiac Killer. Staff writer Dave Smith accurately noted that authorities could only connect the Zodiac to five murders, and even with the addition of Sherry Jo Bates, the total number of victims only came to six. Smith also reported that Question Documents examiner John J. Harris had examined the new letter and concluded that the Zodiac was the author. Confirmation that the killer had written the letter only created more complications for investigators. Detectives assigned to the Riverside investigation firmly believed that the local suspect committed the crime. Any scenario involving the Zodiac had to address the suspect as well as the physical evidence in both cases. If the Riverside suspect did kill Bates and Bates was killed by the Zodiac, then the local man had to be the Zodiac, yet the evidence indicated otherwise. If the local man was not the Zodiac, but did kill Bates, then the Zodiac lied when he hinted that he was responsible for the murder in Riverside. If the Zodiac lied about his connection to the Riverside case, he could have lied about his involvement in other crimes. If the Zodiac did kill Bates and the local man was not the Zodiac, then Riverside authorities had focused on the wrong suspect. Over the decades, the Riverside Police Department attempted to distance itself from the craze surrounding the Zodiac mystery and asserted that the killer was not responsible for the still unsolved murder of Sherry Jo Bates in 1966. According to Riverside investigators, the former boyfriend known by the pseudonym Bob was still the prime suspect. Years later, Bob stated that he did not kill Sherry Jo Bates. Police later obtained a DNA sample from the hair found in the victim's hand and compared the specimen with a sample of Bob's DNA, and the samples did not match. The news did not deter Riverside authorities, and Bob remained the only suspect. Riverside investigators refused to consider the Zodiac as a suspect, but the media consistently referred to Sherry Jo Bates as the Zodiac's first victim. No one knows if the Zodiac was actually responsible for the Riverside murder or any of the writings associated with that case. However, if he was responsible for the confession letter, the writer claimed that he was stalking more victims and the murder of Sherry Jo Bates was just a warning. So 
Zodiac, A to Z. Written and produced by Michael Butterfield. Zodiac voice by John Knight. Zodiac, A to Z. Produced for ZodiacKillerFacts.com Thank you.